Uh, the start of the week and plenty to hear from the day's radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. He'd been shot through through the leg. Bullet came out through through one leg into the other leg and subsequently was taken out of his leg then ending up with four bullet holes in his legs. We clean as much as we can. I got a custom-made uh, extended litter because so there's no excuse. <laughs> it felt amazing. I'm yeah. not going to lie to you. I was nervous yesterday. I was jittery during the yes. dry run. But I kind of think it's good to get the jitters out then. Let that be that. Yes. Go and have a little sit down in the dressing room. Breathe. Have an old tea. Steady as she goes. Yeah. And to start in the afternoon, Joe Duffy was talking about one of Dublin's most famous landmarks, Cleary's Department Store, and a shocking incident in its history from 1982. We mentioned earlier that this year is the uh, 170th anniversary of the foundation of Cleary's, uh, which was the building is still there in O'Connell Street in Dublin. That's where it started. Um, And... A number of people were asking, what's happening with Cleary's? There's been building work going on for five years. People will remember, at least five years, people will remember that the company was taken over very quickly by um, another entity who basically shut it down within a few weeks and that was the end of it. Um, And the reason the listeners contact us is there's, there's an ad going around at the moment saying there's going to be a Cleary's archive open in January, this being nearly the middle of January at this stage. We're wondering where it is. There's no more information. And uh, when we mentioned that, we were contacted by a number of people who hope uh, a number of chapters are included in the archive. And Jerry, Jerry Guyhan, Jerry, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. Um, for a very, very, and I'd, for, I'd forgotten about this and my apologies, it happened mm. in 1982, not too long ago, and it was uh, outside Cleary's, but it was two Cleary's employees, including your father. What happened, Jerry? Uh, my father and and uh, you know they were employed by Cleary's as uh, door staff or porter staff. But yeah. he he was retired from his job as a prison officer. Uh, he was in his sixties, and himself and uh, another gentleman um, by the name of Jared Crowley. Okay. Uh, we're on their way back from the bank after collecting wages to pay Cleary's staff. Right. And they were set upon in Sackville Place by uh, a gang of uh, criminals who subsequently uh, robbed them and uh, shot Mr. Crowley dead and injured my, my father in the uh, in the struggle. And uh, the two of them... Um, were badly injured, and this was wow. during the bad snow in 1982, mm-hmm. when the country was at a standstill, if you remember. So, um, and I, I, I would have, as I said, vaguely remembered the shooting. I, I did not remember, to my shame, that a man had been shot dead. That's right, Jared Crowley, who was a, a senior employee in in um, Clears at the time, and as I said, my father, who was. Uh, uh, on the security staff or porter staff at the, in Clears at the time. And what age were you, Jerry? Oh, I was, I think I was 20, um, 1982. I was in my late, no, I was born in 54. So I would have been 38. Was okay. that, that's about right, yeah. So, so, so tell us, what's your memory of it? When did you hear? Well, I was, I got a phone call. I was working, I was a civil servant in the Department of Transport at the time. I was got a phone call in the morning, late mm-hmm. one morning, 
to say that my mother had rang, or rang to sell, tell me that my father had been uh, shot and injured at Cleary's. So yeah. um, I made my way towards, and that he was in Jervis Street Hospital and um, undergoing uh, surgery. Okay. So I made my way towards Cleary's, and on the way, I remember seeing outside the uh, the pub called the Old Stand that there was a uh, fellow selling newspapers. On the newspaper headline was "Man Shot Dead in Cleary's," and so I was. Uh, that would uh, disturb you just a bit, but my way, my way towards. Uh, you, you thought it was your hospital. You I thought it was my your father dad, shot yeah. dead. So I uh, ended up then down at Jarrah Street Hospital yeah. and I was told that my father was in surgery and uh, um, we waited around for a while but that he eventually came out of surgery. He'd been shot through through uh, through the leg mm-hmm. and bullet came out through through one leg into the other leg and subsequently was taken out of his leg then ending up with four bullet holes in his legs. So... Um, he survived that, and uh, but Mr. Crowley unfortunately didn't. And Joe asked Jerry about Mr. Crowley. What do we know about Mr. Crowley? What age was he? And family? And well, my own my own dad was sixty five, which was um, young, uh, young. I don't. Young. Yeah, yeah, and Mr. Crowley, I wouldn't have known uh, too much about him, but I subsequently, just by way of of, uh, of coincidence, I was in Stellarvon only in the last couple of months, mm-hmm. and I. I ended up um, talking to this lady and she told me just after recognising the name that uh, did I know a particular man, John Guy, and I said, yes, he's my father. And she said, uh, well, my name is Crowley. I'm a daughter of the man who was who was uh, wow. shot dead at Sackville Place. Yeah. And it would have been, again, it's 1982, but there, wasn't there, there was a bank, well, there's lots of banks close by, but there was a bank very close by and I presume that was the bank that Cleary's deposited their cash every evening or whatever and they went to collect the wages and it would have been a very short walk uh, it, I, I think it was the bank uh, if I'm not mistaken Joe I think it was the bank uh, AIB at Foster Place and ah, okay. that they were well, bringing the money from there yeah. to pay their wages every week uh, well, that's a long walk week. isn't it yeah yeah but they were set upon in, in Sackville Place at the back of and there, 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 was there. anyone ever caught for it there was surely Uh there was, yeah. There was a, uh, yeah. There was a few. There was a gang caught, all right. And, uh, and where they, sorry, where they convicted? More importantly, they were convicted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and are they, what were they, you know, what they were charged with? Do you, does that um, there was one man, I think, uh, from, um, and I, it was only I was trying to refresh my memory. He was from Oran Moor Road. Yeah. Um, and uh, was beside me uh, in Ballyfermot. Yeah. Is it? Yeah, yeah. this uh, um, this man was subsequently jailed over that. Yeah, yeah, and he was might have been released then after serving life. And how was your father afterwards? Um, my father um, wouldn't have been a hundred percent afterwards. He was obviously he was a tough man, um, having been a prison officer for thirty or forty hmm. years. But he uh, he still it you know that that was. Uh, that was a tough ordeal for any man to go through, and particularly a man of sixty-five at the time. I think he was so, but uh, he survived it. And uh, whether he was, I, we were probably. I wasn't living at home. Mm-hmm. I was, but um, 
from what I can remember, he wasn't 100% after it, but there again, physically he was probably all right, but mentally I'm not too sure. But he didn't go back to work, did he, Jerry? Oh, he did, yeah. Oh, did he? Oh, he did, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, he he did go back, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He Um, went back to work and worked until... uh, yeah. Gerald Crowley was 59. Uh, the man who was convicted of his murder was a man called Michael Gibbons of Arnmore Road in Ballyfermot, and he was released in 2012. And he was. Yeah, um, yeah, that's the yeah. Only. And son of Gerald Crowley, Con called Joe. Con, good afternoon, Con. How are you, Joe? How are and, things? Good. And Con, it was your father who was uh, murdered. It was indeed, yeah. It was indeed, yeah. And what are your memories of that event? What uh, age were you, Carl? Well, just to, before, I know, I remember Mr. Guinan. He was a lovely man. Okay. Um, very good friend of my father's. And uh, he turned up at, every year. There was a mass. The staff used to have a mass. Yeah. Subsequently. And um, every year in the pro-cathedral. And Mr. Guinan turned up every year. Very nice man. And there still is a mask, as I meet the chap who organises it, John. All right, uh, yeah. There still is a mass every year for ex um Ex staff. Uh, staff, yeah. yeah and I didn't so, Con, you, you would have been relatively young, would you, in 82? I was 29, I was 29 That's at the time, yeah. Okay, and what's your memory of that awful day? Uh, I worked in the Bank of Ireland and I got a phone call from Arthur Walls, who was the chief executive yeah. of Indiaries yeah. at the time, to say that there had been a robbery and my father had been shot and he needed me to go home and tell my mother. So mm. I laid at home anyway and uh, I waited for my mother to come back and I told her and we went into Jervis Street Hospital. But he had died in the in the meantime. My brother was inside oh in the gosh. hospital. Yeah, he, he was 67 actually, Joe. Somebody oh, said was he was 59, okay? but he, he was I'm actually 67, yeah. Okay. He had retired and then gone back. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. And was yeah. that his regular uh, function, Con, to... He was, ser- he was services manager in okay. involved in all the maintenance and all that kind of stuff. But one of the one of the things was taking in the payroll and that, you know. And you, he was he died fairly quickly, did he? In yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they actually, uh, he was initially. This was the guards told me anyway. He was initially shot, and he was very friendly with all the guards, and he might have recognised the guy. Okay. And your man came back and shot him a second time. Oh, God's sake. Mm. Just right outside his workplace. Right the back door, yeah. Right outside his workplace mm. where people used to queue to go into Santia, yeah, yeah. Santia Christmas in Cleary's. Exactly, yeah. And, and Con, the effect on your family? Ah, oh, sure. You can imagine, Joe. You know, yeah. you can imagine. It's had a huge effect on us. But we're a very strong family all the same, you know. And <laughs> excuse me now, but... We kind of stuck together and, you know, we got over it. You have to, you know, you have to go on. My mother was a very strong person. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's Con Crawley and his brother Eric called Joe. You're a brother of Con, so so Gerard was your your dad, the man who was shot dead at the Cleary's employee as recently as 1982. And Eric, um, what age were you at the time? What do you remember? What I remember is that uh, I actually got a call from Con uh, to, to tell me that uh, of the shooting and that my father was in hospital and he was being operated on. So I, he, Con went home to get my mother and I went to the hospital. So I went into the hospital and uh, the doctor approached me and told me that my father was on the operating table, oh but gosh. that uh, it didn't look good. Oh my God. Um, and about 
10 minutes later, he came back in to tell me that he had passed away. Oh, God. And was your mother there at that stage, Eric? Was no, it? she wasn't. No, uh, uh, Tom and my sister made, and my mother arrived in about 10 minutes later. Oh, God. So and, I just and told did, did you get to see your dad before he passed? No, I didn't know because he was on the operating table. Um, as I think Colin had mentioned to him, had mentioned uh, he had been shot in the chest the first time and then the guy oh. came back and shot him the second time in the chest. Oh, what a trauma for a family to go through. Yeah, it was, it was very difficult at the time. But uh, as Colin said, my mother was a very strong individual and she kept things together very well. Yeah. So, um, and how he was, uh, he was, he was an extremely uh, fit man, my father, very, okay. very, uh, very fit and very strong individual, uh, physically. Uh, he was 67 years of age. Yeah. He retired about two years previously in, in, in Kerry's, and he'd been asked by Mrs. Guy to come back and start to arrange to set up security. And yeah. they're in the process of doing that when the robbery took place. But he would have known the local guards a lot because there was a lot of activity in the street yeah. for that situation, yeah. a lot of yeah. dangerous situations which the guards had to deal with. And he had a great regard for the guards. And people, like, people remember there was a lot of bank robberies, um, which, was, were, yeah. which were uh, primarily paramilitary uh, at that time. Uh, there was a lot of activity on O'Connell Street because of political the hunger strikes and what have you. Yeah. It was a very, very, very busy spot. Say it was least. a very busy spot. And um, what the guards told me at the time was that uh, if the robbery was associated with the INLA and that it was a cash-raising exercise. Um, and there were actually two people captured uh, on the day. Uh, the person who ran into the shop, that Colin went to the uh, bookie shop, bookies, was captured. Yeah. And then another guy who had actually the phones, uh, he, he was running down the street and he was seen by the cards and he was tackled and he was captured and phones were recovered. Oh, the and one, nothing okay. that was hugely relevant. Yeah, and yeah, the yeah. third member then of the gang, there was a third member, the guard said to me that uh, they knew who he was and that they would catch him eventually, which I believe they did. Okay. That's Eric on the live line with Joe Duffy. And in the morning, Creative Robots, Claire Byrne was talking about a new app that can write essays and uh, lullabies by request using artificial intelligence. Now, the start of this item is going to sound a little bit different because we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence chatbots. And you might have seen this in recent weeks. A new platform, ChatGPT, has been hugely popular online. Basically, you give the app an instruction to write a certain thing and it uses artificial intelligence to create it. So obviously this is presenting huge questions for academia, like essays and coursework and literature, if the bots can eventually write entire books. That is the question. And we're joined now to discuss this by Professor Alan Smeaton, who's an expert in the field from the Insight Centre for Data Analytics at DCU. Alan, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Explain how this works, the computer software. How does it create what you ask it to create? So uh, good morning, Claire. So typically the applications of artificial intelligence have been predicting or classifying things. So we know about if we show um, a a picture, we can detect whether there's a face there or not, or whether it's a particular individual or in medical applications, we can detect things like tumours. Or in self-driving cars, we can 
detect the difference between a stop sign and a pedestrian. Um, and these, this software is built upon tons and tons of training data where we say this is a pedestrian, this is not a pedestrian, and eventually the computer learns the difference between the two. Now, a couple of years ago, or a few years ago, researchers turned this round and said, well, if the computer knows what something is, and I say knows in inverted commas, then maybe it's able to generate new versions of the same thing. And probably the best example of this uh, is with images, where a group of researchers in France took about 10,000 impressionist paintings uh, and generated a new false synthetic one, which they then christened uh, Edmond de Bellamy, and it looks just like an impressionist painting. Um, and that was a breakthrough because it, sh it showed how AI systems could generate new stuff rather than just recognize the difference between one kind of stuff and another kind of stuff. Now, if we take that to text, what um, companies have been doing, the large internet companies, is that they've been gathering and gathering large corpuses of text, analyzing the patterns in those texts and using that to be able to predict what the next words in the sequence would be. And this is a, a lot of the basis for this is, is, um, is what we see in machine translation from one uh, language to another. Um, uh, and most of the, ma the main companies. Google and Meta and Amazon do this. But in 2015, there was a company founded called OpenAI, and um, its mission was to make artificial intelligence more openly available directly to the, to the public. And it's received literally billions of dollars in investment from companies like Microsoft, but also from uh, and its founding stage from people like Elon Musk. Uh, and what it does is um, they have gathered together uh, a vast corpus of human-generated text crawled before 2021, and they've analyzed all that text to detect the patterns in those words. Now, we can say, therefore, that they've built a model of language, and these are called large language model, module, uh, models. And they've configured it now into a version which is, acts like a chatbot. So given a prompt or a question, it will spew out text in the style uh, and the format and on the topic of your prompt. Yes, and I was playing around with this chat B GPT this morning and I asked it to write a lullaby for bedtime and I'll, I'll give you part at least of what it gave me back. Hush, little baby, don't you cry. Mama's going to sing you a lullaby. Close your eyes and go to sleep. Dream of sheep and counting sheep. Now, it's not great, Alan, is it? No, that's not great. Um, but the more you use it, the more it learns about the kind of prompts that come from Claire Byrne. And it will get better and better and better as it learns more and more about you. So it gets to know um, me. It gets to know your prompts. That's not to say it gets to know you. It just gets to know more of what you're looking for. Because it has this vast corpus of, of human-generated text. And it says you're looking for lullabies. So it picks out lullabies and it kicks out sheep and it picks out Twinkle Twinkle and other kinds of things. And it puts them together in coherent text. And Claire didn't stop at lullabies. She wanted the bots to write the show. We asked it to write an introduction for this uh, radio item for our conversation. We asked it to write less than 100 words. It wasn't great and it gave us 150 words. I'll give you one of the lines here. Hello and welcome to our radio programme. Today we'll be discussing the topic of artificial intelligence chatbots. So it's OK. It sort of gets the direction of travel. But again, yeah. it's not exactly what, what you would want. Yeah. It's and, and as I said, it, it, the more you interact with it, the more specific you get with it. So if you were to go back to it and say, well, the audience is a national audience, do it again. OK, 
Okay. Well, the, the specific topic of artificial intelligence is large language. Well, do it again. So it would get better and better and better the more and more times you use it. But the that narrower means that the, the users, comes. Alan, has to put in a lot of work then to get the, the chatbot to work properly for you. If if you're looking for very precise, very accurate, then yes, it does require effort on the on the part of the user. And who might be prepared to put in that effort? Oh, anybody. The, you see, the applications for this, uh, we, we're currently playing with them. We're seeing the chatbot because what OpenAI have done is that they've made this available to the public. I mean, anybody can rock on up, type in your email address, get a password and you're starting to use it for free up to a certain limit. But in the background, you could imagine this being used in a host of other kinds of applications um, when it's provided as a service for a fee. This is to tempt us. This is to go. This is us to get us to use it and 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 uh, hype up the expectation and say this is great. This is great. This is great. And that's exactly what's happening in the last month because this this was only released at the beginning of December and within five days they had a million users using it. Uh, John Walsh in the Irish Independent today is writing about the challenge for universities when it comes to services writing essays for people who are in academic study. This is where this could be headed too. Oh, this could be headed and will be headed in multiple directions, Claire. But this is one of those directions. And yeah, it was launched, as, a, as I said, at the beginning of December. And we had um, some open book exams in our labs in, uh, in I think it was about the, the 9th or the 10th of December, where the students are sitting in front of terminals or computers and are allowed to access the Internet to look up information. And already there were some of them using ChatGPT, putting in the questions getting what ChatGPT gave us the answers and using those as the starting point. Now, the lecturer in, 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 in question was gobsmacked as in, oh, this is so, I don't know what to do with this. Are they allowed to do this? There's no rules to say no. So we actually let them use ChatGPT in those exams. Um, but that is one area where, where it could challenge us. But we've been here before in education. Technology, new technologies have constantly been challenging what is the norm in education. And if we go back to it, when when handheld calculators were first uh, introduced and made available, people thought, well, that's the demise of mathematics. When when the Internet was available, people thought, well, that's the demise of reading. When when mobile phones were be available, then people thought that's the demise and essay mills. People thought that's the demise. This is just the next big leap or big generation in artificial intelligence. And yes, it is a challenge to us in the educational well, sector to, to monitor it and use it appropriately. Professor Alan Smeaton from the Insight Centre for Data Analytics at DCU from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the news at one, the cleanest town in the country, NACE. NACE Main Street was singled out as exceptionally well presented and maintained. Three quarters of the 40 cities and towns surveyed across Ireland are clean, compared to just over half this time last year, according to IBAL. Vorneen Hennessy is secretary of the NACE Tidy Towns Committee. We're, we're absolutely thrilled down here in NACE. It's our second year in a row. We won it last year as well. So a double, a double whammy. It's marvellous. Um, but I suppose we deserve it. We work hard. Mm. And it's a relentless task, uh, as you know, picking litter is just constant. So uh, we just keep ploughing away and it's great to be rewarded, you know, for all our volunteers. So tell us then about your volunteers and the efforts and what you do to keep the town clean and tidy. 
Well, we have about 55 volunteers who, who help out regularly. And, you know, ranging from young to old, um, anybody who's willing to get out there and don a high-vis jacket with a litter picker and off they go. And they consider it fresh air and exercise. So it's uh, good for the mind as well. And they they all remain very positive, even mm. though it's relentless. I mean, <laughs> they never go out in litter pick and don't find any. But they um, they're they're very happy to do it, and uh, we would we wouldn't win this award only for our volunteers and our tooth workers. We have four tooth workers as well, and they're a great help, you know, yeah. to to keep and, um, the place tidy. And tell me, Vernon, t- typically what kind of litter are, are you picking up? What's the most the, the commonest kind of rubbish? It, it changes from year to year, but at the moment it is the disposable uh, vapes. And that comes with uh, a mechanism as well as a box and a list of instructions. So we get a lot of them. Cans and bottles continue to be picked and uh, masks, not so much now. And takeaway food, that, that's, that's a constant. And of course, the, uh, am I correct in saying the canal runs close or, or, through, or through NACE as well? And very often those kind of waterways can be a real magnet, can't they, for rubbish? They can, but Irish waterways have been really on top of it now for getting that cleaned out. We clean as much as we can. I got a custom-made uh, extended litter picker, so there's no excuse. <laughs> Rampar um, came up with this uh, new device, so we use them. And, and our and our transition year students from our secondary schools here are, are a little bit involved. I'd like to see them more involved. But they uh, get into kayaks and go down the canal as does my son. He was in TY last year. They all hop into kayaks, very happy to do that, and they get an enormous amount of litter. And as you say, this this really does need the efforts of all those of all those volunteers. You you just can't depend on the on the local council to be able to deploy the no, resources. No, the local the local council do support us extremely well and I have built up a great um, relationship with them over the last 15 years. There's no council could, could pick up every cigarette mm. butt, you know. That's an, that's another problem, cigarette butts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, mean, this I, is... I need to get a machine uh, developed to suck them up. <laughs> uh, I mean, just just talk to us a little bit about, about keeping the volunteers motivated because, as I say, this is something that's, uh, you know, pretty well seven days a week, isn't it? From some cases quite early in the morning. I mean, how, how do you keep people at it? This year we set up a WhatsApp group and it has worked extremely well. It has cost no money. People have connected in with it. And when they have a job done, they put it up, they put up a photograph and it motivates others to keep going. And that has worked very well for us this year. During the summer, we may go on a little trip, an outing maybe to another place who has won National Tidy Towns. That helps. Um, and we would have maybe a social event in the summer, maybe another one at Christmas. All of those events tend to to help. But some go out in pairs or groups of three, and it they they motivate each other. And it has been really good. I have one lady now, Josie Kelly, who is up at half five in the morning, litter picking at six. She says it clears her head. It sets her up for the day. And it has been her saving grace, you know. So people have different reasons for doing it. And we all help each other out. Voronine Hennessy from NACE Tidy Towns from the News at One. And on Today with Claire Byrne, the volatile situation in Brazil. 
The Brazilian president has vowed to punish supporters of the country's ex-leader, Jair Bolsonaro, after they stormed Congress and ransacked the Supreme Court yesterday. Luis Inácio Lula da Silva toured the wreckage of his presidential palace after an extraordinary day of political violence in the capital, Brasilia. Thousands of far-right extremists dressed in the Brazilian colours failed to overthrow the democratic institutions of the weak old government in scenes reminiscent of the January 6th invasion of the US Capitol by followers of Donald Trump in 2021. Well, joining me in the studio now is Graeme Finlay from the UCD School of Politics and International Relations. But first, we go to Brazil and to freelance journalist Constance Mallory in Rio. Constance, thank you for joining us. Many people will have seen the footage of the storming of, of the Congress and the Supreme Court. They were really extraordinary scenes. But can you describe for us what happened? Uh, hi, Claire. Yes, so yesterday afternoon, um, as you said, thousands of Bolsonaro supporters were marching through the capital, Brasilia, uh, accompanied by the police. That was one of the most shocking things about yesterday. And they arrived to the Three Powers Square, where Congress, the Supreme Court, and the Presidential Palace sit, and uh, invaded these three buildings, as you say, ransacking them all, smashing windows, trashing offices. Uh, the room where the Supreme Court uh, convenes was particularly violently trashed, uh, people waving around copies of the Constitution. Uh, so, yes, really, really quite shocking, violent scenes, uh, violence against this public property and uh, these, you know, democratic uh, institutions. What was their aim? Um, so this is a group of uh, radical Bolsonaro supporters who, since Bolsonaro lost the election to Lula in October, have refused to accept the results. A lot of these uh, radicals have been camped out outside army headquarters since early November, demanding a military coup to prevent Lula from taking power and to keep Bolsonaro in the presidency. Obviously, that has happened because Lula has been inaugurated as president. And so it would seem like yesterday was... Uh, perhaps a last-ditch attempt to try and oust Lula or at the very least create chaos for his government. And the president wasn't there, as I said, at the time. Uh, He, though, has responded. He's denounced the rioters. He's announced a crackdown. Do you think he'll be able to gain control of this situation now? Um, The government has definitely done everything it can to show that it is uh, taking back control, regaining control. Uh, The the police uh, regained control of Congress of the uh, government buildings within a few hours yesterday. Uh, today, the uh, federal uh, secretary who's been put in charge of um, guaranteeing public security in Brasilia said that the situation was under control. Um, and, but the question now is uh, whether the government will be able to su- successfully go after and prosecute everyone involved in yesterday's actions and not just the vandals who were in Brasilia, but also people behind it who were funding uh, funding this chaos, this vandalism. What's been the response across the, the board to this, Constance, from the public, from the media? I mean, absolute outright condemnation. Uh, You've got got the main main TV channel here, Global News, uh, calling the acts terrorism, echoing in a sense what the government is saying. Uh, The public that voted for Lula, that, you know, respects the the democratic result of the elections, are calling for there to be no amnesty against any of these criminals. So uh, definitely outright condemnation from anyone respecting democracy. And the former president, Bolsonaro, believed to be in Florida. There were pictures of him there having a fast food meal. 
Yes, so he has uh, commented on Twitter. He posted on Twitter yesterday a few hours after it all kicked off, uh, giving a very lukewarm condemnation of the violence. Uh, he said that peaceful demonstrations are a part of democracy, uh, and that he has always acted within the constitution, but that damaged public property breaches these rules. But he's also repudiated all the insinuations and accusations coming from the Lula government and other voices in Brazil that he, you know, in some way incited this uh, this violence. Then Claire spoke to Graeme Finley from the UCD School of Politics and International Relations. Graeme, thank you very much for being with us. Before this election, you were here and you, you predicted that a situation like this could arise. This, though, extremely serious, very violent scenes, thousands of people. And as Constance says, one of the most surprising elements of this was the support that those protesters had from many of the police who were there. It is a remarkable scene, and it was something Brazilians were worried about. And the police were divided. During the election, the federal highway police were trying to suppress the, the Lula vote by having checkpoints for buses and so forth. Uh, whereas it's you, we've seen the federal uh, military police, especially of the Brasilia the district, uh, being the ones who finally secured the buildings and are cracking down on the protesters. Similarly, the army is divided, and one of the things we have to watch in Brazil right now is whether the army is entirely on board with putting down this this insurrection because as as Constance was saying the the protesters came from camps they had erected around military bases and a lot of them returned to those uh, camps afterwards and some of them have dispersed but there are reports that the army is protecting and preventing the police from arresting the these insurrectionists um and only just in the last few minutes have the defense minister and the commander of of the army the head, highest army officer um declared that they're going to go clear these camps and that's one of the things which was the background to this is that they were they said the 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 civilian government said they were going to clear these protest camps but they didn't partly because the army was was going slow on it well if what the protesters were seeking was a military coup, they obviously saw a chink of light there. They saw that it was perhaps possible. Indeed. And, you know, the, this is why international condemnation has been so important. Um, the Biden administration came out very, very quickly. Even during the election, they, they moved to say they were very clear that they were going to recognize the result right away because they were expecting a Lula win. And, and so the whole world has condemned this attack on Brazilian democracy. And that's, I think, part of the military's calculations. And individual military commanders will realize that the likelihood of succeeding is, is not high. Where does this go, though, from here? Because Lula ordering the federal uh, police, the federal government to take charge of policing. I mean, does that spark fears that a police state could now emerge? Well, you know, the police being divided means that it's hard to have a, of a police state. What is maybe more concerning is the figure of, of Alexandre de Moraes, who's a, a Supreme Court judge. He was also the head chief judge of the electoral court, the Supreme Electoral Court. And he's a real hate figure for these insurrectionists. They stole his door when they stormed the Supreme Court offices uh, because he has been acting in a quite remarkable way to to suppress even the allies of Bolsonaro who are possibly involved in, in this particular coup attempt. So uh, he's he's asked, for, the Attorney General has asked for the arrest of Anderson Torres, who was in charge of security and a Bolsonarista in Brasilia. He's in Florida with Bolsonaro, we think. And um, De Moraes has also deposed, basically, the, the um, governor of the federal district, uh, Ibanez uh, Rocha, 
who tried to fire Andrew Centaurus in the middle of the coup, perhaps to avoid this particular fate. But he's been suspended. His governorship has been suspended for 90 days. So, is he a Bolsonaro supporter? And he's a, Bol- he's a very, very So, so it's Bolsonaro this supporter. sort of tricky time in between the changeover of administrations where you have people loyal to the former president who are still in positions of power. Yeah, but they're being removed by the orders of like uh, Lula and the Supreme Court Justice, de Moraes. So it's a very tense time. Uh, it's not over. And you're right, we will see um, a state of emergency declared until January 31st. Uh, That's a relatively short state of emergency, and it is arguably the the appropriate response to a a coup attempt. But if this state of emergency persists, I think uh, there'd be concerns about um, whether this is becoming more authoritarian. I don't think Lula has historically had tremendous authoritarian tendencies. He's democratically elected. But you do have to watch for sort of the abuse of police power in Brazil. Okay, you mentioned uh, international condemnation being hugely important here when it comes to controlling where this goes from a military coup perspective. We have a statement just in from President Michael D. Higgins, which says the democratic election of President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva is the choice of the Brazilian people. President Lula da Silva faces enormous challenges to which all those who believe in the democratic process should lend their support. And you're saying statements like those are hugely important. Yeah, I think if you're talking about a country which has as recent coups and very frequently changes hands with coups, um, you know, these coups can succeed. If you think about the coup in Egypt, for example, the response from the international communities, particularly from the United States, was quite muted. And that's why the CC is still in power in, in Egypt. Whereas the blanket condemnation um, would make things very, very difficult for any Bolsonaro regime. And then you add to it, of course, that he's in the United States and things are going to get very colorful there in case um, Brazil asks for his extradition. Um, he fled to the United States probably to avoid being charged with a number of other crimes surrounding corruption, abuse of power and his handling of the, the COVID pandemic. Uh, so things are, um, the role of the United States cannot be underestimated. And without Jair Bolsonaro, they don't really have much of a, a, a chance of, re- of replacing Lula. Graham Finley from Today with Claire Byrne. New Year, new season of Dancing with the Stars. A new presenter, Deren Garrahy, was telling Ryan Tuberty in the morning how she felt about her first show. It felt... Amazing. I will yeah. not going to lie to you. I was nervous yesterday. I was jittery during the yes. dry run. But I kind of think it's good to get the jitters out then. Let that be that. Yes. Go and have a little sit down in the dressing room. Breathe. Have an L tea. Steady as she goes. Yeah. Have an L uh, sparkling water. Get the touch ups done. And then, do you know what? So the opening sketch of Jen and yeah, I. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, so that's obviously yeah, like pre-recorded. That. And so standing in the wings watching that kind of really relaxed me because, you know, that was the first, that was, we had been seen then. Yes. So I kind of just relaxed into it and I didn't freak out about the stairs. I said, if I fall, you know, we can go viral. So that's... So that, that's a very good attitude. Yeah, you know? that, that if you if you if you if you land without a fall, you're winning. <laughs> if you fall, you're winning. If you're losing, you're winning. <laughs> so you've got it. Sort of, that's a great yeah. attitude. I like that. So once I got down, and Jen has just been from the get go, just amazing and so supportive. And as soon as I got down, and we did our little hip bump. I was just rapt. Yeah, and, and and you got stuck into a bit of a, a dance at the beginning as well, yeah. uh, which was which was brave um, because was dancing is not easy, as we know. Yeah, uh, and uh, I was wearing the leotard thing, and I, I won't lie, I put on the leotard early in the week. And Ryan, when you don't have a spray tan done, 
and you don't have your hair done and you're standing in the depths of January with, and you're, you know when you're so pale you're almost purple. Yes. And I, I lo- do actually. I was looking in the mirror and I rang my sister Alva and I was like I did not get this job to feel terrible in a leotard. She was yeah. like Darren you'll be fine. You were like the, the you know the Blair Witch Project where they're looking into the camera I'm so was it like that? That's what I was like. Yeah, just just terrified yeah. and pale. Yeah, but it was okay then with but the tan it, and everything. It, it, there's a lot of tan, isn't there? On, on, I mean, we know this from, and you even make reference to it in the sketch with the crates. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think Billy was was delivering crates was. of fake tan. That was good fun. It is funny because everyone, I won't say it was so orange on the screen because <laughs> all the dancers and all the heads were there. And I thought, this is like, like a Trump family reunion. Yeah. <laughs> it was so orange. Well, this is like a Jaffa... <laughs> <laughs> a Jaffathon. <laughs> well, actually, when I got the job, uh, one of the people uh, in RT kind of said to me, look, at people think that TV is all glitz and glam and fake tan. This is the only show where that's absolutely <laughs> true. Yeah. yeah. It is exactly all of those things. Um, so uh, so let's, go, let's get down to business yeah. anyway and the show itself. Um, it, it, do you know what? It, it's one of those shows that... <laughs> <laughs> it's so bonkers that like you just sit there looking at the news and it's cost of living the hospital tries yeah. it, and then it's half six and you think they didn't think they're just going it's like it's Kansas and Oz isn't it oh absolutely and I, I've never ever in my life really looked forward to January and so to have a January that I was just so excited about yeah. with glitz and glamour and, and fun was just amazing yeah and I mean as you say like it's just mad it's bonkers and like the likes of Arthur even him as a character alone you know he's like you're so cutie yeah. Like yeah, all these, yeah. these things he comes out with. And then Lorraine, the queen that she is, and Brian, you with the sass. Oh, it's, it's just, I'm so happy to be part I liked of it. it. I, I mean, they gave the, the um, dancers, uh, all the competitors, quite low scores for the most of it. Yeah. Um, so they, they obviously are saying, right, this is, we're gonna, we're, this is not a charity shop here. Yeah. I kind of like that. I like that as well. I like that. None of this kind of like, it's, you know, sometimes home in the year gets, gets on my nerves a little bit. <laughs> I watch it. I love it. Yeah. But they all... They never go lower than a seven. Yeah, that's true. It's always seven, eight or nine and maybe a ten. Uh, but with this one, now they go down three, four, five. I they mean, were, yeah, they were tough last night. There's no on money a couple of people. There wasn't. But I think they, that's important as well. You need to have a journey. And Ryan asked Dieran about the contestants' dancing styles. Something I would never do in my life. So I, I, I admire everyone for doing it. Yeah. Like hats off. And you can see them all. There's somewhere some people are just have have a natural totally. rhythm, rhythm and yeah. you can't you and then some are just clunky McClunk <laughs> and the clunkettes you know just just stomping around <laughs> giving it a go and even though I know nothing about dancing you don't need to just to know that you're yeah. El Clunko right so or or El Clunka either way the point is that that that's when when Brooke then danced yeah. and you saw it was just so natural oh she has it and you just thought now that's what. That's what it is. Yeah. And I'm not surprised she was overwhelmed, really, because she just, I, I mean, she had had a bit of a blip in the dance rehearsal where yeah. she she just kind of froze. Um, Did she? Yeah. No, she genuinely froze and, and kind of had like a, a moment. brain melt. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't like she fell or anything. It was just the moves left her head. And Carl then had a similar moment, but his was unfortunately during the show. Um, but look, I think that's part of the journey as well. Let's let's have a look at uh, let's go through some of the uh, the, the acts from last night. Yeah, and just have, let's do have it. To crack it. Kind of goggle box on radio. What <laughs> okay, happened? Okay, okay. Uh, so Stephanie Roach and Arvinas, and uh, they did the cha 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 cha, which I always thought was the cha cha. It is. No, it is the cha cha. It says here it's cha cha. 
But then they say cha-cha-cha on the show. And well, I asked about that in rehearsals. And they were like, no, it's the cha-cha-cha. I was like, I always thought cha-cha. Well, I mean, I don't know if it was one of my colleague Gareth in TV who said when we were rehearsing the interview with the Dancing with the Stars on the Late Late Show. Uh, and we said, right, it's time to have a cha-cha-cha. <laughs> <laughs> It's terrible, I love it. but I did like it. Yeah, I like it. But it's Ste- the cha cha. Yes, Stephanie. They were very tough on Stephanie. I felt. I thought they they weren't um, as accommodating for the, the, the you know the going first, the nerves that come with that. Yeah, I think yeah, you're you're right. Um, the the lines were you need to trust yourself, uh, you need to relax, and your spine was a little bit blocked. Yeah. <laughs> Week one. Thank you, like, Doctor. Can we, Thank you, Dr. Brian. Can we calm down? I think yeah. Jen said that. Like, let's remember this is week one. Yeah, yeah. And it's a massive challenge. As you said, for some people it comes naturally, for some people it's it's clunking around the place. She definitely looked like a dancer. She though. totally did. Didn't she? I mean, yeah. I don't know if maybe she just needs to, you know, as Trust as, as her as Venus, as they said. Trust her yeah. Venus. Okay, Suzanne Jackson, I have to say, got a ah. lot. I, I enjoyed that because <laughs> we've spoken about so Sumi, she's one of your go-to imitations. So uh, Sue is one of my OG impersonations. She really was at the beginning. And she said to me in the wings, she said, Darren, you've come a long way from doing impressions of me. <laughs> Did she, <laughs> to her credit. Thank you. Thank you, Suzanne, for and being part of my, my story. Was Dylan there? <laughs> Dylan was there with bells on. And you know what? Dylan was in the audience. And I put up a little story on my Instagram afterwards. I got a Domino's. <laughs> and Dylan replied. Oh, yes. With okay, a so they're all in. emoji because they love their Domino's. The Domino's. <laughs> so Dylan and the Domino's. That's like a band. Um, <laughs> anyway, but in fairness, at least everyone's getting the joke there, which is, which is lovely. <laughs> so she, again, uh, Suzanne looked terrific. She looks um, fantastic. She can dance too. And you know what, there's pressure. Samba. But see, when you look that good in the costume, like she looks like a dancer, there's a lot of pressure then. People expect you to be brilliant. Luckily for her, she was. Yeah, so it worked well with it her. Well. With her and Michael, so that's good. They got big scores, eight, eight, and seven. Yes. Uh, Kevin McGarhan and Laura Nolan did a Viennese waltz and did a Robbie Williams tune. Uh, also did did rather well, didn't he? Really, I thought I thought he did great, and his VT was excellent. He's very funny. He's yeah. just naturally a funny and really lovely guy as well. Nice warmth to him. So totally. He'll he'll, he'll keep the. Pain. Now Paul Brogan and his trousers um, <laughs> were also on the Late Late Show <laughs> when he came on the show. I remember he walked walked down the steps and I was going. <laughs> I won't repeat what Donegal Callahan said on 2FM Breakfast this morning about Paul and his trousers. What did he but say? But you can listen back if you... I'm not saying it. Come on. I'm, I'm not. Come it's on. It's joke. You can listen Throw back Throw Donegal under the bus. What did he say? No, no. It's about My something... mom is listening. she kill me. <laughs> Was it about something to it's do the with... the tightness around the front. You yeah, know, we can yeah. all... We can hazard a guess. <laughs> we can hazard a guess. Paul loves a tight trouser. He likes it. He enjoys it. I mean, yeah. I don't know how he gets puts one foot in front of the other. The other. I, mean, I don't know how he doesn't burst. The, yeah. Anything. Look, anything like can med- happen next week. It looks medically challenging. <laughs> <laughs> Those trousers. Now, it's brave of me to say that now. He's a big fella now. I wouldn't want to meet him down the street. I'd duck if I saw him. Another lovely guy. I, no, again, yeah. no doubt. And from a great family, as you know. So yeah. he's with Salome. He's such a great Oh, she's. Do you know what? To, to watch to, her. Yeah. She's just phenomenal. And in the pro, the pro dance at the start of the show, she just draws your eyes are drawn to her she's yeah. just a pure a dancer through and through and Ryan asked Darren about actor Leah O'Rourke Leah O'Rourke and John Nolan uh, did the um, schools schools out so this is the Derry Girls uh, yes. actor yes. Uh, Leah and uh, so it, she was a, g- a good choice of uh, contestant I think absolutely oh, she's yeah. great fun she's going to bring a little fun. quirkiness to it I think uh, yeah and I love that she was like I'm, I'm loving this whole experience except for the dancing yeah <laughs> 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 well, that's pretty straight. So, not 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 necessarily big um, big numbers, but uh, she won't be 
she has a likability. She like does. A, we, yeah. like, look, we, too early. Too early to call too anything. Early, too early. Now I have to say the next one. Then I, I know, <laughs> I get my head around watching the former state pathologist. Uh, <laughs> I, my head was melted. I if I was an emoji watching that, it was the melting. That was my head on the couch watching. Do it. you realize how many things we say every day that have death? within what we're saying. Like, I mean, I was chatting to her in the rehearsal and she said that her family encouraged her to do it. And I said, they're dead right. Yeah, I forgot And about. Steve and her partner kind of laughed. He thought I had done it on purpose. On I was purpose. like, oh my God. No, you're killing this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, she's deadly. Um, yeah. But it is, it's, it's fine because it's murder on the dance floor. That, uh, look, it, if she doesn't dance to that at some point, I mean, what's the point in anything? No, she would have to be, she would have to be, she would have to be careful. There'd be taste yeah. issues. <laughs> anyway, I, I found, there she was dancing. Uh, what Great did she fun. do? A jive? Yeah. And I was going, I'd only ever seen her in a boiler suit at a horrible scene on yeah, the news yeah. and met her once on the TV when she retired. Mm. A lovely woman, Sc- Scottish. Yeah. Um, and uh, and what I liked about it was she clearly has this side to her. You know, like the perception is so strange. So funny, That's what this it? program does. It takes people out of zones you might have put them in or boxes. Or Absolutely. Lovely, so, yeah, and she's great fun and, and, and just so smiley. And she was having a ball. It was It was so clear to see she was enjoying herself. She really was. And I think, and she has it. She has something. She has the, she sure. has rhythm for like absolutely. She's got she got three fives. She danced to Billy Billy Ocean's Love Really Hurts Without You was the song. It's good too. All right, then um on to uh, Damien McGinty and Kylie Vincent. Uh, Damien being the glee star. Yes. But also as I saw last night on the on the tape he was on the tape. Um he <laughs> was uh, he has he's a musician in his own right yeah. and uh, he's been in other things as well, but he did the, the tango to an uh, Ed Sheeran song. Yeah, his whole family have come back from uh, the States nice. to support him and the dog. He said the dog is jet lagged. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So cute. How do you know? You, I don't know. He just said it's the dog is all over the place, but it's, I mean, it makes sense. Bloodshot eyes, yeah. <laughs> temperamental, time for more like chips or something. Uh, uh, but it got a 766. So he'll be, he'll be grand. He'll, yeah. he'll last the pace too. I think so. Uh, th- then the big uh, leaping out really was Brooke and Maurizio and yeah. uh, they did the salsa to let them know by Mabel and they got a nine and an eight and an eight. Right? Like phenomenal. So we talked about that already. And Maurizio, so. do you know what? He was uh, with Cathy Kelly last year and oh, yeah. Cathy was the first to be first voted out. out, which is tough for the pro as well because you don't get a chance because he was new last year. Mm-hmm. He didn't get a chance for people to see his personality. So it'll be interesting to see how he gets on. Yeah, he'll get... Uh, he, He'll certainly get a longer run this time. There's He's no a fiery guy. Is he really? He's a fiery guy. I think we're okay. going to see spice from him. Okay. Well, you need that. You know, of course you need a little bit of spice. <laughs> um, then Carl. 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 My and great pal. Carl, so just for people who don't know, because you're so you're you're so radio one day, which you don't know what two FM is. <laughs> uh, that uh, so Carl presents the, the breakfast program with uh, Deeran and Dunica, and uh, he. I thought he he brought this great splash of colour to the thing. The, the, totally. the, the outfit, uh, his personality, as you know. Yeah. Um, but also the set around him. And he gave the Foxtrot and the Monkey's Great Choice a song. Uh, he'll be in it for the long haul as Do well. Do you reckon? I think people will warm to him, no doubt about it. Look, you know, it's it's it's, it's just too hard that, that first dance for anyone is, yeah. is going to be tricky. He had a little, yeah, he had a little fumble and he was kicking himself this morning. He didn't get a lot of sleep last night. No, no, don't do that. Just because don't, don't be rattled by that now. Just pick it up. Yeah, that's what he said. The song sure says, pick yourself up and get back in the race. We have the best possible person to pep talk with him, Dunica. Yeah, he'd be so, great you for know. that. Okay, so you're all minding him. Like, Absolutely. Gonna, okay, we've got to keep going then to Shane Byrne. Shane Byrne and Karen Byrne. Dark horse Shane I tell Byrne. You, his, he did, it was the Beatles help. At one stage, because he's a big lad, former rugby player, yeah. 
It wasn't like he bounced on like a like a gazelle, <laughs> like a little bunny, like a bunny. It's <laughs> even better. I was going, how is that man, that big man? He was excellent bouncing. Yeah, Lorraine said she was like your agility was fabulous. Agility, very was. agile. And he's one of these people. Do you know what? He's quite deadpan, but then once he gets once he starts talking, great crack. Could be a surprise. Watch watch him. Okay. I think so. uh, and then finally, it was Panty Bliss. Ah, brilliant. Um, and Dennis Sampson. They did the cha cha. Cha, the cha, cha, cha. Uh, I want to dance with somebody and that got an 8, 7 and 8 big big scores big personality oh. like you know panties in the room that's for unbelievable. sure unbelievable yeah. like what an aura yeah um, And but you know a gorgeous moment then at the end you know when he when he spoke about it when he was younger panty I mean she, panty uh, speaking about um, you know being younger in Mayo at fi- as yes. a 15 year old watching turning on TV at half 6 yeah and yeah. what it would have meant yeah I think good. it was it was gorgeous, a history making moment. And also because Panty is uh, a sassathon. Oh yeah, I, I like that. I think he, or yassathon. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see your sassathon and raise you a yassathon. You win again. Darren Garrahy from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And on Today with Claire Byrne, Lord Mayor of Dublin, Caroline Conroy, was talking to Claire about protests in Ballymun at the weekend. There were angry scenes in Ballymun in Dublin over the weekend when groups of protesters gathered outside a hotel protesting the housing of refugees there. It's just one of a number of demonstrations that have taken place at emergency accommodation locations in recent months. Caroline Conroy, Lord Mayor of Dublin, joins me on the line now. Good morning, Caroline. Good morning. You're originally from Ballymun. How does it feel to see those scenes in your own locality? Oh, look, it's uh, really embarrassing. It's uh, upsetting. Um, it's not what we're about in Ballymun. Um, I've always worked in the community, still continue to do that. And all the groups that have contacted me are really upset and distraught about the scenes that they've seen taking place over the weekend. But there were a lot of people there, weren't they? Those marches seem to be well supported. Well, there's a lot of people that aren't from Ballymun. There are people who are locals there, definitely. But uh, an awful lot of them are far-right far uh, winged protesters and they were seen and they are also unfurled their protest uh, banners, which were... Uh, quite um, visual and they're also going around doing a leaflet drop so they are not locals that are um, behind the scenes here on this particular protest. So you think most people came into Ballymun to attend that protest rather than being from Ballymun? Well, there is locals there, we know that, but um, the majority of people who have contacted me are all from community groups, schools, um, even Philly McMahon um, that I was speaking to, um, they're all very upset because this doesn't represent what we uh, do in Ballymun, what we're about in Ballymun. And um, it's certainly a minority who are out there protesting against vulnerable people who have nowhere to go. And we've always been a welcome, um, open to welcome to people um, when they come to Ballymun. We're made up of people from all over the place. That's how we originated. And it, it's always been the case of um, helping people who are uh, in need of that help. And that's what we do and that's what we continue to do. And um, what's really shocking and upset is that 
um, so much work has gone into Ballymun and um, shown what we do in a positive light. And then this one weekend um, seems to destroy all of that hard work that's been done over the years. You mentioned that you had a chat with Philly McMahon, the former Dublin footballer, and he was tweeting that, uh, and, a, and a quote from his tweet, disappointing to see some of the scenes in Ballymun over the last two days from a community that is judged constantly to now judging asylum seekers. Can you tell us a bit more about the chat that you had with Philly about what might be done? Yeah, well, that that's exactly what we're um, talking about. Uh, a number of us are coming together today and we're going to uh, look at what what's the best response from the community um, to show people that we are about bringing people in, uh, welcoming people in, um, showing the the real side of Ballymun that we've always shown, which is that we're inclusive, that we um, come together when people um, need that help. We've always done that and we'll continue to do that and we won't let the minority um, have the loud voice, which they have had, and social media and the media um, tend to pick up on the ones that are loudest. And the ones that are loudest are normally the minority, not the majority who are working behind the scenes day in and day out. And that's what we want to show. When it comes to this meeting that you're hoping to, to put together, like who else will be involved? Will the minister be involved? Will Roderick O'Gorman be involved? Have you spoken to him about it? Uh, they will be involved, but this first initial meeting will be about the community coming together, community groups, schools, principals, I was talking to principals of schools, they're shocked and horrified because they've been working on the ground for years in Ballymun and that's not the Ballymun they know either. So we're all coming together um, and going to look at what is the best response to show people that we are here, that the vulnerable people who are coming into our community, that they are welcomed and that we are here to help them how in their you, hour of how how will you go about showing that, though? I mean, would you consider a solidarity march now? I don't know yet. We have to talk about that. I don't want to preempt um, the meeting. Um, but certainly already we've had uh, people who have come into our community get involved in the tidy towns, in our community gardens. They're always there willing to help and get involved. And that's the best way to break down barriers is to get to know these people on an individual basis rather than just um, throwing out the usual uh, um, one-liners that uh, says nothing about the people that are here in their most vulnerable hour. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen this in December. People will remember in Eastwall in Dublin, that area was brought to a standstill a number of times because of similar protests. Do you believe that those protests are being orchestrated? I do, yes. And talking to people in uh, East Wall as well, they're in the same situation where the majority of the people who um, have worked on the ground um, have always highlighted the positives in their community and all the great work that's been done in the likes of East Wall or in Ballymun or Talla or wherever it is, um, it gets drowned out in a situation like this and that's not fair. That's not fair in the community that has always been there for the most vulnerable and they will continue to be there and we want the vulnerable people that come into our community to know that that we are here and that we welcome them here. Lord Mayor of Dublin, Caroline Conroy from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily so mind yourself till next time. <laughs>